Good morning, Dallas Bible Church. It is great to be with you guys once again today. And to all of our fathers who are celebrating today, we just want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Just let you know that we love you and we honor you. And my, my blessing for you today is that the barbecue would be plentiful and that the ties would be tasteful that you receive today. So uh, anyway, I do hope and pray you have a great time with your families or whoever you may be celebrating with today. I also just want to acknowledge that for the people that this is a little bit more difficult day for you, we are in prayer for you, and we, we love you, and we are thinking about you today, too. I've got a few announcements for us before we get into things today. The first off is that we are about to open up very, very soon. And so you've cut the memo. We're jumping into things here back in our building again on Sunday, July 5th. So we're only about two weeks away. Hope you're able to join us for that. And uh, then we will be picking up after, uh, shortly after that. So we do need you to go ahead and RSVP because we need to know who's coming, how many people we can have in this building and everything. So please go ahead and RSVP as soon as you can because spots will be limited that day. We can't pack it in like we typically do. Uh, you can go to dallasbible.org backslash together to go ahead and RSVP there. Uh, if you're willing to serve on any of those days in a greeting team or in a cleaning team, uh, you can also re reach out to us through that same link. We need to, we need to connect with you and help you uh, get, uh, get things going there. Next week, we are going to be doing uh, two nights of prayer up here at the church. On Tuesday and Thursday night from 4 o'clock to 7 p.m., you can come and go as you please, but this is going to be another opportunity for you to come and have a prayer experience that we're calling it here in our church building. So we're going to have different prayer stations set up, a little bit different than last week, but we'll have some stations that you can, you can uh, go through, you can walk through as we pray, uh, really for unity, for peace, for healing, for repentance uh, in our country right now. As you well know that there's so much turmoil and there's so much pain that's going on. And so we need to be people who are praying right now. We're going to be up here doing it with you Tuesday and Thursday night, 4 o'clock to 7 o'clock p.m. Come and go as you will. You don't need to sign up or anything like that. So you can just come and uh, jump in. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 6, if you will. However, just a little fair warning, we're going to be jumping all over the place today. And so we're not going to be camping out there very long. But uh, the reason I want to do that is I want to have a little bit more robust of a conversation about what biblical justice actually means. And so if you've been paying attention to some of the cultural narrative and everything, going on like I have, um, you know that there's a lot of talk going on right now about what justice really means and what it means to be a church or a Christian that is involved in biblical justice. In fact, this past week, um, I, I, got this, I got this email. I was, uh, I was checking this thing out. It was an article that was talking about how justice-minded pastors are now embracing Marxism, evidently, and how they've sold out the true gospel and true justice for a hippie version of social justice. Okay, so that's one of the things that's being spread around out there now. And the argument in this article goes like this. It says, uh, these verses that deal with the poor are often the spiritual poor, the, spiritual, the spiritually bankrupt, and the beggar. And so they, meaning these justice-minded pastors, probably self-included here, they want to take them and say that we need to give to the poor and help the poor. And they take a lot of scripture out of context in order to do it. There's not one verse in the New Testament that says believers in the New Testament church should allocate some of their already limited resources to the unsafe poor. Okay, in other words, what they're saying right there is the, the argument is that giving to the poor is not a responsibility for the Christian. It's not a responsibility for the church. And obviously, it has absolutely nothing to do with biblical justice as we would call it today. Uh, meanwhile, you're going to turn on the news and you're going to see a number of riots. And you're going to see all kinds of violence and blowing up businesses and assaulting innocent people. And you're going to hear that it's done in the name of justice. 
And then you're going to have other conversations outside, and, and some people are going to be saying, hey, some of these justice issues we're looking at, okay, what we really, really need is more government intervention. And other people are going to come and say, no, 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 what we really, really need is for the government to withdraw and have no intervention, and then we're going to be able to accomplish justice a little bit more. Some people are saying, okay, no, 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 it's not really about government, but it's really all about the church. And we need the church to rise up, and the church is, is going to be the vehicle for justice in the world. And so we need to be the ones that are building the shelters. We need to be the ones that are taking care of all of the poor and eradicating poverty and things like that. While others are saying, no, 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 okay, what we really need to be doing is we need to hit the streets, and we need to pray, and we need to go out there and just share, share the gospel, and then that's how justice is going to be done. And so what are we talking about when we talk about this thing called biblical justice? Because what, like we mentioned it a few weeks back, and we saw this really, really difficult passage in Matthew 23, where Jesus gets angry, and he's calling out the hypocrisy in religious leaders at that time. And you remember why he does it. He says, he says I have this one thing against you. He says, you, you, you've forgotten the greater matters of the law. And you remember what these things are? He says, you guys have forgotten the greater matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then he continues on and he says, you should have continued with the latter and not neglected the former. In other words, you should have continued with faithfulness, church attendance, Bible study, prayer, fellowship, all the great spiritual disciplines that we engage in regularly. You should have continued with faithfulness, but not to the neglect of doing the hard work of justice. And so Micah is going to say the same thing in the passage I want to look at today. And again, like I said before, this is one of the most famous passages in Scripture, especially when it comes to justice. You're going to see it on the T-shirts. You're going to see it on the armbands. You're going to see it on the signs. Like This is the poster child for biblical justice right here. Now, if you're not familiar with the context of this setting, um, the prophet Micah is speaking in the nation of Israel somewhere around 735 uh, B.C., which means this is going to be taking place just before the Assyrian captivity, which means this is a bad time for the nation of Israel. They're coming under the judgment of God. Um, this is not a good time. They're, they're feeling the weight of opposition. The Assyrians are the rising power at that day. And shortly after this prophecy takes place, they're going to be taken away into captivity. And so uh, the prophet Micah, he's looking at the pain of the world and he's kind of going, okay, Lord, like what would you have us do? Like it, it, it's clear. I'm looking around and it, it, it's obvious based on the things that are taking place around us culturally based on all the divisiveness that's taking place, based on all of the pain that we're feeling and the things that I'm observing around here in the world, like what would you have us do in the middle of this time? And so, and so he says to the Lord in verse six, he says, okay, God, do you want us to come with, with burnt offerings and calves that are a year old? In other words, you want us to come with more sacrifices and ritualistic practice? And, the, and, and, and God's just like, no, that's not necessarily it. Verse seven, he just simply says, okay, do you want us to come with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil, and God just is silent on that. He's like, no, it's, it's, it's not about the money. I don't need your money. That's not the thing that I want. Do you want us to offer our firstborn? He kind of, he gives us hypothetical. He's like, what do you want? You want us um, to give up our firstborn here? Is that what you want, Father? Is that what you want for the sin of my soul? You want us to sacrifice our children? He's like, no, no, no. Don't be that extreme. Don't be that far. <coughs> And so the father finally responds to Micah, and he says this in verse 8. He says, Micah, I, I've shown you, oh man, what's good. I've already told you the things that are good. Like, I've already revealed my will to you. I've already given you my law. I've already revealed my heart to the nation of Israel. We've been walking together for a really, really, really long time. And so he says, I've shown you, oh man, what is good. And I've shown you what you're supposed to do. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. 
And so we got to understand, church, when we're talking about doing the work of justice, we're talking about biblical justice here. We're not talking about vengeance. So it is always in the context of, of these things that are put together. We, we do justice, you, you love mercy, and then you walk humbly with the Lord. It's exactly what Jesus said right here. You've forgotten the greater matters of the law. Jesus is repeating this exact same thing, justice and mercy and continuing with faithfulness. And so you never divorce one from the other. And so when we're talking about biblical justice today, you got to understand we're not talking about vengeance, okay? We're not talking about an eye for an eye or anything like that. We're not talking about payback or repaying evil for evil. Jesus is abundantly clear about how he feels about paying back evil for evil. I mean, it, it, Matt, Jesus is going to say, love your enemies, right? Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Paul's going to pick up on the same thing. He's going to say in Romans chapter 12, he's going to say, repay no one uh, evil for evil, but pay attention. And he says, do what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And remember, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In other words, I can, I can take care of the vengeance. In other words, I, I know what you're feeling inside. Like the anger that you're feeling inside at the injustice in the world, all of that is legit. That is a holy and righteous anger, which I feel too as the father. However, you need to understand that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so, so it's not about vengeance when we talk about biblical justice. And I want you to hear me that this applies when we're talking about blowing up abortion clinics. And this applies when we're talking about the riots that we see on TV today. Like we don't as believers get to fight evil for evil, no matter how just the cause might be. I'll tell you one of the things that I've really admired, um, and watching some of the things that have taken place over the past couple of weeks. But I love the way that the churches have responded in this moment. Uh, most notably, I've, been, I've loved some, watching some of the different black churches in our areas rise up and do things so well. They've been leading the charge in this so, in so many different ways. But I'm thinking about Conway and Jada Edwards over at One Community Church. And I've told you before, I love going over to their church in July and worshiping with my brothers and sisters over there. But recently they, they organized a protest over in Collin County and they gathered about 120 to 140 different churches over there in Collin County to go to the courthouse and to prayerfully and peacefully protest what was going on in our country, the racism that continues to exist. And so they're out there and they're protesting. He comes back and they're having an interview with a number of different pastors and everything. And one of the guys asked him, he says, okay, Conway, so why did you decide to organize a different rally or different protest than any of the other protests that were taking place all around the city at any given day? And he goes, well, that part's simple. He goes, Christians do it differently. Christians protest and Christians pursue justice in a completely different manner. He's like, that's the simple thing. Like, we do things differently. We go and we speak about the injustice at hand. We absolutely call for change. Then we ask God to move supernaturally and then also through the hands and feet of the church. But we do it all peacefully. And so Christians do things differently. By the way, church, like this is, a, this is exactly how Martin Luther King Jr. did it back in the day. Like back in the day, they would have special trainings for pastors, for, for protest leaders, and for different churches that were marching for civil rights. And they would prepare for the evil that they were about to engage that day so that they would be ready to respond with peace. I mean, that's what they did. I've got some pictures over here. You can take a peek at these things. But like, they did this and they practiced being antagonized by hateful, evil people. They, they practiced this thing. They, they, they knew what they were doing, right? Like, like they knew that they were going to go out there and they're going to be provoked. They, they knew that, they were going to, that there was going to be a fight, that people were not going to like what they were marching for. They, they, they knew that they were fighting against legitimate evil in the world at that time. And they knew that they were justified in their anger. 
But here's what they also, they, they also knew the biblical justice, it demands a different way. And so King Solomon is going to say this about justice. And I love this statement because initially it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. But here's what Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 28. He's going to say, evil men, they don't understand justice. But those who seek the Lord, they understand it fully. Now I'm going to repeat that because I want you to listen to it. He's going to say, evil men, they don't understand justice. But people who seek the Lord, they're going to understand it fully. Now, that might sound a little crazy at first because especially when you're looking around and you're going, okay, I know a lot of Christians. I know a lot of religious people who absolutely butcher justice. Like they, 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 whatever's going on over there, that ain't justice. But the reason that this statement is true is really twofold. Number one, true justice is defined by the Lord. He's the one that gets to define what is just and what is unjust. He's the one that gets to define these things. It's why people who seek him daily are going to be able to understand it uh, and, and walk in it more fully. God is the one who gets to define what's right and what's wrong in our world. Not culture, not our parents, right? Not our opinions, definitely not our politicians and, the, and, uh, and our political parties or anything like that. Like he is the one that gets to define what is right and what is wrong in the world and then how you and I go and choose to engage that injustice. Like he is the one who spoke the world into existence. He is the one who numbered the hairs upon my head. He is the very definition of love. And so he alone gets to define what is right and long, wrong. And he alone gets to tell us what we need to do in pursuit of his definition of what is right. And so generally speaking, it's a good definition for biblical justice. Biblical justice is very, very simply, it is an extension of mercy that helps make things right in the world according to how God defines what is right. Okay, that's what we're talking about. It is an extension of mercy that helps make things right in the world as God defines what is right. And so that's number one. True justice can only be defined by him. Now, the other reason that people who seek the Lord will better understand it is number two, is because like that's where the heart for justice is fueled. People who seek the Lord have a heart that is fueled by a God who is just and holy God, and his justice, which is inherent in his nature, will fuel this fire inside of us as we seek him and as we are in intimate relationship with him, and that will fuel and spark this fire inside of us to go and to be agents of justice. In other words, like as you and I draw near to him and as you and I seek him on a regular basis, your heart will eventually become his heart. His heart will become your heart. His ways will become your ways. It's what John, it's John 14, 21, when Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he's the one who actually loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I, and, and, uh, and I too will love him and I will disclose myself to him. That's what he's saying right there. This is how it works. As you draw near to him, right, right he's going to respond and he's going to draw near to you. He's going to disclose more of himself to you. You're going to become more and more aware of who his, of what his character is like, what his heart actually is, where his, where his attention actually resides. And, and you're going to grow in your awareness of everything that God has done on your behalf. I mean, church, like, justice is at the center of the gospel, is it not? I mean, we have to understand, like, justice is at the center of the gospel. Like, the just wrath of God against our sin, it had to be satisfied before you and I were ever recipients of his grace and his mercy. I mean, that's what took place, church, like, when you and I were in a helpless estate before God, when we were vulnerable, when we were needy, when we could do nothing about our helpless estate, when we were separated from God because of sin and we were deserving of hell, the just wrath of God against our sin, it was satisfied through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
in order that we might receive the fullness of his mercy. And so every single day, church, like I come before the Lord our God in prayer, and I'm reminded of the fact that, it, that I am undeserving of his grace and his mercy every single day. Nevertheless, I, I remember that in the middle of that helpless estate, when, when I could do nothing about the place that I was in, God reached out towards me with mercy. And he loved me in the middle of that place. When I could do nothing about where I was, when I couldn't earn my way to heaven, right? When I couldn't do enough good deeds, when I couldn't come to church enough, when I couldn't memorize the Bible enough, when I couldn't help enough nice people walk across the street, when I couldn't do any of these things enough, God in his infinite love looked on you and he looked on me and he extended mercy while we were in the middle of our helpless estate. And so when we're talking about biblical justice, we're talking about doing the exact same thing. We go and do the same as God defines what is just and what is right. And so I just want you to take a peek at some of the, few th- some of the things that he says about justice and how he defines what's right. I mean, Isaiah is going to say this in chapter 58. He's going to say day after day, again, he's going to be rebuking the nation of Israel here. Day after day, they seek me out like they're eager to know my ways. In other words, they're pretending like they want to know who I am but they don't do what's right. right? They're doing church, they're doing religion, but they're not doing the things that are ultimately right. It's not just Sunday, it's Monday through Saturday, right? Like they're seeking me out like they're eager to know my ways, but they don't do what's right because they've forsaken the commands of God, he says. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit your workers. Can you imagine that? Like a prayer and fasting night at the church, and they're coming up there, and they're, they're fasting. They're legitimately not eating anything. They're pretending that it's a righteous act. They're going up there, and they're praying. And then afterwards, they're so hangry at what's been taking place. Like they're so hungry and angry at the same time. Like they're actually fighting each other afterwards. And it says even in verse 3, they're exploiting their workers. In other words, this is something that Jesus, is, that God the Father is looking at. And he's saying, like, this is not right. You don't exploit your workers, employers. People who are in charge, people who have power, you don't exploit the people who work for you. Verse 4, he says, you're fasting, it ends with fighting. <laughs> so the prayer, the prayer meeting's done, and these guys are like brawling afterwards. In other words, like they're, they're angry, and it says that they strike each other with their fists. And he says, is this not the fasting that I've chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice. You're missing the whole point. He says, you're, you're, that's not the fasting that I want. It's not just about the religious activity. The fasting that I want is that you would go and be an agent of justice and that you would loosen the chains of injustice. And so I want you to notice the choice of words that he uses right there. He doesn't say, I want you to go and eradicate injustice. It's an impossible task. Many of you are, are, are looking around the world right now and you're kind of going, okay, like when is it going to end? Like there's so many different things. Like there's so many different things I could be pulling from as I look at the world and I see everything that is broken. Like when is it ever going to end? And what he's saying here is like, that's not the point. It's going to end when Christ returns and there's no more crying, no more tears, no more, no more sin and no more death, no more pain. The old things pass away, new things will come. Like that's when it's going to end. But until that time comes, what I want you to do is to go and to loosen the chains of injustice. Make it a little bit better. Loosen the grip. Loosen the bondage that's on people's souls and on their lives right now and make this world a better place. Do the things that are right as I define the things that are right. And some of us may need to hear that right now because you're going to, some of you are feeling, okay, well, uh, when is it going to be enough? When are we going to arrive? And the reality, church, is like, we're not going to arrive. But we're also, what that means is like, we're going to never stop working. We're going to keep engaging. We're going to keep moving forward with, with, with acts of mercy in ways that are going to be, loosen the grip of injustice that's going on in the world. 
He continues and he says, uh, is it not, meaning, uh, is this not the fasting that I've chosen to untie the cords of this yoke? That we're not going to be, that we're not going to be enslaved by these things that are wrong in this world anymore. Is it not to share your food? I love this. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor with shelter? Church, is he talking spiritually there or is he talking literally, physically? He's talking literally physically. He says, is this not the fasting that I've, that I've asked for? That you would share your food with the hungry, that you would provide the poor with shelter. I mean, when Jesus said, like, to the extent that you've done it to the least of these, it's the extent that you've done it to me. Like, what's he, he's talking very, very literally there. When you feed the poor, it's like you're doing it to me. When you feed the hungry, it's like you're doing it to me. When you give, uh, when you give the naked clothing, it's like you're doing it to me. That's what he says next. When you see the naked, you go and you clothe them, and you don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Zechariah says the same thing. He comes on and he says, when, it's, when, when you set aside a time to fast, like, was it really for me that you're fasting? He says, no, of course it wasn't. Therefore, verse 8, he says, administer true justice, like not the fake, not secular justice, like not things that are talked about. Like, true justice is I define what is just and I define what is right. Show mercy. Here it is again. Show compassion to one another. Church, repeatedly over and over and over and over again, when God talks about what is just and right, it is in connection with an extension of mercy and an extension of compassion to people who are vulnerable, overlooked, and people who are needy. That's what he says in verse 10. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. And I just, I just want you to notice who, who gets the affection of God when it comes to justice right here. Look at, the, look at who he's talking about. He says, it's the widow. Don't oppress the widow. It's the fatherless. There's a lot of talk nowadays about the fatherless problem out there, right? Like, I, I want you to notice God's heart for the fatherless right here. Like, he moves towards them with mercy and compassion, it's the foreigner and it's the poor. And what he's saying right here is that by connecting it to these acts of justice, he's saying like, like what they're experiencing in their situations is not right. It's not okay with me. I get to define what's right and what's good. It's not always about merit. It's not always about what you can do when you pull yourself up. He's like, some things are not right. The plight of their situation is not right. It's not right for a child to grow up without a father. It's not right for a foreigner to be lost in a strange land and have nowhere to go or nowhere to, to look at it and have no idea how to get around. It's not right for the poor not to eat or, or have shelter or clothing. It's not right for a widow to be left alone and have no ability to provide for herself. I mean, I'll never forget my trip to India a number of years ago. Um, I was going out to this town, and I'll never forget coming into the city and uh, there was an extension of the city that was on the outskirts of the city. And this is where they put all their widows to live. And so you, you come into this town. And I remember coming. I was like, where are we now? And they're like, this is where all the widows. Like, you've been, they've been ostracized from the culture. And this is where they go live. And I'm not kidding. It's just abject poverty. It's, just, it's cardboard homes. Like, like no plumbing, no sewage, no, no anything there. And I'm walking through these streets and these widows are coming out and they're begging us to come in. And we come in and we just pray with them. They're just weeping and weeping and weeping. And what God is saying is, I'm looking at your situation and I see you, widow. And what I see happening in you and all around you, it's not okay. It's not okay. And it breaks my heart. And I see your circumstances and I see the way that you're living and I see how no one else around you sees your plight or cares about your life. And, and, and they're looking at you saying, you don't matter at all. I see those things and it matters to me. And that's exactly what God's saying right here. Like these things, they're just not right. 
Isaiah is going to say it like this. He's going to say it's not right for judges and politicians to partner with thieves or to take bribes and gifts because it keeps them from defending the cause of the fatherless and the widow's case won't come before them. In other words, these judges and politicians are taking money from all the powerful, from all the rich, and what it's doing is that it's keeping them from actually orchestrating justice and hearing the cause of the widow and hearing the cause of the poor and the fatherless in the situation. So church, part of being biblically just is that we're going to be paying attention to our judges and to our politicians, that we're going to make sure that they're going to be honest people. They're going to be people that have character, that might know how God defines what is just and what is right. I mean, in fact, a few verses earlier, he's going to say, in fact, it's actually so bad in the nation of Israel. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. I want you to see what he says right here. He's going to say, when you spread out your hands in prayer, like I actually hide my eyes from you, even when you offer many prayers. He says, I'm not listening to you. Why? It's because they're not doing the work of justice. They're not, they're not prioritizing justice. They're not prioritizing character at the highest level over here. They're not prioritizing men and women who are going to be able to look and discern what God says is right going on in a situation or in a church or even in interpersonal relationships. They're showing favoritism to one another. A wealthy person comes into the church and they're saying hi to that person and they're ignoring the impoverished one over here who comes in the other door. And what he's saying is like, you're gathering for these prayer meetings, but I'm not going to listen to you. He actually says that verse 15, I'm not listening. I hide my eyes from you because you're not concerned with justice. You're not concerned with justice. And so here's what he says in verse 16. He says, wash, make yourselves clean. In other words, repent, pay attention to my word. Pay attention to what I'm saying right here. You're not hopeless in this thing. We're not hopeless in this thing. If we recognize, hey, I'm not paying attention to justice. It's not a helpless endeavor. We listen to the word of the Lord. We recognize what he calls us good. We fall in line with his, the authority of his word. And then we wash and we make ourselves clean. And he says, take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Stop it. I love that part. Just stop doing it. Just stop doing it. He says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Psalm 68, 5, he's, I love this one. He's going to say, I'm a father to the fatherless, and I'm a companion to the widow. In other words, what he's saying here is this isn't just a hobby to me. This isn't just something that I'm passionate. It's not, just, it's not just a hashtag that I liked on Instagram or Twitter or something like that. It's not just a, it's not just a cause. I want to jump a bit like, this is who I am. And what I love about some of these verses we're going to look at here is like, like God the Father is identifying himself with the plight of the needy. Kind of like on Instagram in my biography where I say like, this is who I am. I am a Christ follower first and foremost. I'm a husband to Kat. I'm a father to Caleb. I'm a son and daughter of Bev and Jim Armstrong. I'm an Aggie class of 2002 and I'm a diehard fan of the Florida Gators. Like that's who I am. That's my biography right there. That's who I identify with. And what God the Father is saying right here is like, this is who I am. You want to know who I am? You want to know who God is, church? He is a father to the fatherless. And he is a companion to the widow. Some of you widows are at home right now. And you've been locked in because of the COVID thing going on right now. And you need to understand that he is with you. And he is a companion to the widow. It's not a hobby of his. It's not just a little thing he likes to attach himself to. This is core to who he actually is. On a day like Father's Day, some of you need to hear, that's who our God is. You may not have your father around today, but he is a father to the fatherless. He is with you in your pain. He may have 
have been absent. He may have been good, but your heavenly father is not, is not absent. He is always with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He's gone ahead to prepare a place for you in heaven, and he will be with you in the middle of the season. Church, like that's who our God is. Like it's not, it's not an afterthought, right? It, it, it's not a footnote at the end of the sentence. It's core to his DNA. This is his heart. It's why, he, it's, it's why the overlooked and the oppressed, the vulnerable, the poor and the needy, it's why they get so much of his affection. Church, can you just, can you just see how crazy of an idea this is? Proverbs is going to say, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. Like you, ins- you insult the homeless guy in the sh- on, on the corner of the street, you're insulting God. Like that's how personal he takes it. He's going to say, if you give to the poor, you're giving to the Lord. Like that's how crazy this is, that the God of the universe is identifying with the plight of the needy. Church, like every other gospel, every other culture in the world, like the gods identify with the people who are in power. It's just what you do. Like, like to, to, go above, to go against the people in power is to go against those gods. And it's just not what the God of the Bible does. There's a fascinating story, 2 Kings chapter 5, about a guy named Naaman. He's a commander of the Aramean army who happened to be the uh, enemies to the nation of Israel at that time. He's got a slave girl uh, from Israel who's living inside of his home. And the problem with Naaman is that he's got leprosy. And so he's suffering mightily. And, and uh, the beauty of this story is that this Israelite slave girl has incredible amount of compassion and mercy for her oppressive owner, who happens to be the enemy who oppresses her all the time. But it says that this, that this little girl like looks at Naaman with compassion. And she tells him about the God of Israel who's able to heal disease. And so naturally, like, Naaman's ears are perked up. And we see the story play out. And he goes, he goes you know what? Tell me about this God. And so she, he, she goes, you need to go talk to the prophet Elisha. He will, he'll tell you what to do. He'll, he'll, let you, he'll introduce you. And so Naaman packs up all of his things. And he brings treasure and gold and jewelry and all these things. And he goes to the prophet Elisha. And he says, here's my situation. I've got leprosy. I need a miracle. And he offers him all these gold and jewels. And Elisha looks at him. He's like, what are you doing with this? This isn't how God operates. Like, he's not just a God for the rich and for the powerful. He's not a God that you can bribe. I mean, the beauty of this God is he, you already have his ear by virtue of being made in his image. Like, that's who he is. I'm a father to the fatherless, and, and I'm a companion to the widow. That's who our God is. So he already cares. You don't have to bribe him with things. It doesn't matter about the things that you've done. It doesn't matter about your perfect church attendance. It doesn't matter about, hey, the fact that you're the commander of this army over here. None of that matters. You already have his ear. You don't need to come with money and gifts because he already cares. You bear my image. Like He breathed life into you. And by virtue of a God who looked at you and thought about you, before you were formed in your mother's womb, he breathed life into you. And by virtue of that and that alone, he already cares. I mean, church, I'll just tell you, I, I think I've told some of this story before in the past, but like this is one of the things that drew my father in, uh, to God in the early days. Like This is a central part of his testimony. And so I've told you a little bit before, and on this Father's Day, I'll just honor him over and over and over again. But um, this is my dad's testimony. He grew up with four different fathers, never really knowing a father figure in his life. And he didn't start walking with the Lord until the early young adult lives after young adult years after he uh, started dating my mom. He got to know my mom's father, who was also a pastor over there. But my my mom's father uh, was that father figure to him. He starts walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says early on, this is one of the things that drew me to the father, this this identification. When when the father says, I am a father to the fatherless. And he goes, my my heart just longed for that. I've longed for a father. And so he leaned in. And I'll just tell you, like over the years, as he sought the Lord, 
uh, over the years as he grew in his relationship with the Lord. Like, this is one of the things that God did in my own father, is that he, he, he took that identity and who the heart of the father that he was learning about and in fellowship with, and like, that's who he became. He be, also became a father to the fatherless. And so one of the ministries he was heavily involved in is prison fellowship. And he would regularly, all my years growing up early on, he would go to the prisons and he would go and he would fellowship with the inmates and he would do Bible studies and he would hang out with them. And at Christmas time, we would buy their, we would buy their families gifts. And I didn't know what we were doing. We just went to a store and all I knew was, you know, I'm buying presents and toys and stuff like that. And we'd go home and we'd wrap them. And then we'd go over to people's house and we'd go in their living room and we'd do Christmas together. And, like, and that's what we did. And I think I, sh- I shared this story before. I'll never forget being in elementary school one time. And for some reason, my older sister had a soccer game at this field that was right next to this prison. And so we went out there for the soccer game, and we're out there on the sidelines. My other brother, my mom, and and my dad is coaching the team and everything. And all of a sudden, all these inmates start hanging out of this prison system. (laughs) They start hanging out of the window, and they just start chanting, Jim, 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 Jim. And I look over at my mom, I'm like, hey, mom, so like, why are all the prisoners chanting dad's name? And, uh, and she went on, she just explained, she's like, this is the place that he goes all the time. These are the relationships that he's forged. He's, this, these are the, like, he's been, this is where he's been going for years. He's, he's been investing in these, the lives of this men, and he's been going and adopting these families and going and trying to be, do the best that he can to be a father to the fatherless. And church, like, that's what we're talking about with biblical justice. It's why people who seek him are going to better understand justice because you're going to seek him and you're going to draw near to the heart of God who identifies with the plight of the needy. And he says, he's like, I am a, I'm a father of the father, so I'm a companion to the widow. And as we draw near to him, naturally, over time, as the Holy Spirit begins to get his roots inside of us, we're going to go that direction and we're going to identify that heart and we're going to go and we're going to do the exact same thing. I'm thinking of the reeds, and I'm thinking of the Lawsons all around here. They're looking around at this world and saying, like, this is the heart of God for foster kids and for orphans in our world. Like, this is, this is the heart of God. He is a father to the fatherless. And so we want to come, and we want to foster, and we want to adopt, and we want to be a part of this thing. And so, church, I, just, I don't know if any of you just need to see this today on a, on a Father's Day, that, that he is a father to the fatherless. He is a, he's a companion to the widow. And though he may be gone over there, but the, the Heavenly Father hasn't left you. And he is there with you now in the middle of whatever pain you may be in. And so church, when we're talking about biblical justice, we have to understand that like none of the brokenness that we're seeing in this world, like none of that brokenness was ever part of the the original design. Like when we're looking and saying, okay, what do you define as right? What do you define as wrong? Like none of the brokenness in the world was ever part of the original design. It was perfect in the beginning. It's going to be perfect in the end. And in the in-between time, we work and do the hard, hard work of justice to accomplish the things that God's always wanted in the beginning. Church, back in the beginning, everything was good. There was no such thing as pain or death or sickness or disease. There was no poverty or shame or racism or abuse. There was no such thing as, uh, there was only perfect harmony and perfect fellowship with God. But sin comes into this entire picture and it ruins absolute every, absolutely everything in church. Like this is the main thing that God, as he looks into the world, he says, this is the main thing that's wrong with the entire world. It's why the first thing we, do, we see Adam and Eve do, like they hide when, when God comes looking for them in the garden. They hide in shame. They're naked and they're exposed. And for the first time ever, they're aware of the fact that, hey, holy can have absolutely nothing to do with unholy. This holy God that I've experienced fellowship with can have nothing to do with the sin that's in my life right now. And so they hide. Verse 16, he starts to tell them about all the fallout of the sin. And he's speaking to Eve and he says, I'm going to make your pains great and childbearing. 
It's going to be very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to your children. Your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to rule over you. To Adam, he says, you listen to, the, to your wife. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you're going to eat food from it all the days of your life. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. You'll eat from the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you are taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. And here it is, church. Everything that we read in this chapter as sin breaks into the good creation which God made in the very beginning. Like none of it is how it was supposed to be. None of it's right and good as God defines right and good. We were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God, and now we're talking about things like, like abuse and assault in the home. I mean, we were supposed to be, it was supposed to be about blessing and bliss, and now we're talking about pain and poverty all over the place. It was supposed to be this garden that was full of provision, no one going hungry, like no one needing or, or lacking anything. And now all of a sudden we're talking about homelessness and joblessness and a crashing economy and a ground that simply does not want to be worked. But church, like everything's broken because of sin. And this is the main thing. This is what God says is wrong with the world. Like vertically with the Father, our sin, his brokenness. Like we, we, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. And so we are separated from God and we are deserving of hell because holy can have absolutely nothing to do with, with holy. And so one of the first things that breaks is this vertical relationship with the Father. But horizontally, church, like everything else breaks as well. There's anger and hostility between one another. Racism and abuse, selfishness and indifference toward the plight of another. Physically, church, like our bodies are eventually going to give. We don't get better with age. Our bodies don't get better with age. Emotionally, there's fear and there's anxiety and there's jealousy and there's anger and shame. And so we look at everything that's broken and we praise God that, that God in his infinite love, he looked on you and me who are vulnerable and needy and voiceless and can do nothing about our situation. And he extended mercy to us. Church, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, back in the garden, like, there was already a plan. As soon as sin enters the picture, like he looks at Satan and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman over here and between your offspring and hers. And then he narrows it down a little bit and he starts talking about this great cosmic battle that's going to take place in the future between Satan and one of Eve's descendants. And he's going to say, yeah, you're going to strike his heel, and the, but, but he, meaning Jesus, is going to crush your head. And so Paul comes along in Romans chapter 5 and he's going to make this comparison between Adam and Jesus in order to show us that in every possible way, church, like Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin in the world. He is the solution to the problem of injustice. He is the solution to the problem of brokenness and everything that brings us pain today. And so he's going to show us this comparison. He's going to say, okay, like Adam, yeah, Jesus was also fully human. He was fully man. Like Adam, he was also tempted by the enemy. But here's the difference. Unlike Adam, he never actually sinned because unlike Adam, he was also fully divine. And so Jesus's death on the cross, even though the wages of sin is death, Jesus's death on the cross was not a punishment for his own sin. It was a just payment for the sin of humanity through which you and I can ultimately be redeemed. And so Paul's going to put it like this. He's going to say, just as, one, just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification, a judgment, justification, and life for everyone who believes. In other words, like when Adam, was, when Adam ate from the tree and brought in death, Jesus died on a tree that you and I may have life. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he was absorbing the worst of Satan's sting, if you will, at the exact same time, he was also crushing Satan's head and he was beginning to undo everything that sin destroyed, partially right now and then fully still future. 
And so that's what we see Jesus do all throughout his life and ministry. Matthew chapter 11, people are wondering, okay, who are you, Jesus? We know you're doing some incredible things, but like, who are you? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you the son of God? And Jesus says to him, he says, go back and report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy, they are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, he's looking around and he's going like, it's not right that these people are sick. It's not okay that they're blind, that they're deaf, that they're lame. Like, I, I, I see what's going on and it matters. And so I have power and I want to come in and I want to bring healing to the middle of this situation. Like, it's not right that these things are taking place. Like, they're image bearers of God. Like, I, I, I breathe life into them when they're in there in the mother's womb. Church, it's always, always, always about the Imago Day. The fact that every single man, woman, and child has been given inherent dignity, value, and honor as such an image bearer of God. It's what it's all about. He's looking around and saying, these are image bearers of God. They're valuable to me. I care about their plight. I care about the problems, the brokenness that, that, that has come in. And I want to do something about this. Church, like, it's always about the Imago. But church, this is why we fight for the unborn. This is why we fight for the unborn. They're, they're human beings that are made in the image of God. Church, every single year, over 850,000 babies are aborted, right? I, image bearers of God. Jeremiah's going to say, he's going to say, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you and I set you out. In other words, like you are a human, you are divine, that you had, you were an image bearer of God while in the womb, right? He's going to say, he numbered the very hairs on your head. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Church, it's not a choice. This is a human life. We're talking about the Imago Dei. God breathing life into human beings. And by virtue of that fact and that fact alone, God looks at you and sees the pain and he sees hurt and it matters to him. And so we move forward, church. Like it's why we talk about racism. It's why we talk about some of these things today, even when it's very, very difficult to talk about and very, very nuanced in a lot of different things. But we still have to talk about it. Like church, we're talking about lives that are made in the image of God. We're talking about people talking to us today inside of our church, not talking from politicians, not from political parties, people inside of our church, people around our community, people inside other churches around here that we fellowship with that are all saying, hey, we haven't actually arrived. We've made an enormous amount of progress over the years, but there's still more work to be done. Like justice hasn't come in. And granted, we're never going to be perfect. There's never going to be a day when it's completely eradicated from this place. Nevertheless, you and I, we gladly enter in and we prayerfully discern, Holy Spirit, God, is there anything going on inside of me that would help me be a better agent of peace, that would help me understand, is there anything inside of me, humbly and prayerfully, Father, I want to do the work of examination and I want to see if there's anything inside of my soul that needs to be rooted out so that there would be no more things taking place that, 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 are, that are unjust and not right before you. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to learn. And I'm willing to go and do the work of justice. Church, like that's what we do. We look at the gospel and we see things like in Ephesians chapter 2 when Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile so that he could create for himself a brand new man consisting of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation so that we can all come together in one and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because God cares... 
And because he looked at every single man, woman, and child on this planet, and he gave them inherent dignity and value as image bearers of God, we look at the things that are broken, and we say, yes, Father, I want to be an agent of justice. I want to move forward, and I want to extend mercy, and I want to extend compassion, and I want us to be one, Father, as you called us to be one. And the reality church, it just keeps going and going and going. I mean, it's hunger, it's poverty, it's abuse, it's homelessness, it's addiction, it's sickness, it's disease. Because it's all a part of the heart of God. He's a father to the fatherless, and he's a companion to the widow. A little while ago, I was listening to a lecture about the incredible growth and impact of the evangelical church among the poor in Latin America. And I love this article because it was fascinating. It was talking about the difference between um, the evangelical church and the local church that was there already. But for years, it was just talking about how the Catholic church was already there. They were doing incredible social justice type works. They were feeding the poor. They were caring. Uh, they were clothing uh, the naked. Um, they were taking care of the needs of the church. But it comes in and it was just talking about the difference. And one sociologist wrote this. He just talked about the difference between the evangelical church that came in there and the church that had previously already been there. But he said this. He said, the Protestant church has gone beyond just meeting physical needs. They've introduced biblical teaching and faith in the miraculous power of God into the healing equation. And he says, this kind of classical Christianity is really, really empowering. The poor are discovering for the very first time that whether you're upper class or you're lower class, everyone is equal before God, equally sinful, equally in need of his mercy, and equally loved and made righteous by Jesus Christ. And so the poor not only have food for the first time, but they have hope to face their lives. Families are coming together again. Alcoholism is declining. Relationships are being healed through grace and forgiveness. And economic conditions are changing. Church, that's what we're talking about when it comes to biblical justice. Like it's just God's definition of what's wrong and what's right in the world. And we coming along and giving an extension of mercy and compassion so that we can be a part of the hands and feet of Jesus to go and to make things better and make things right in the world. And it's all fueled by intimacy with him. It's all fueled when we come and we seek him and we spend time with him and we get to know the heart of the Father. And so we get to know the heart of the Father. And then we go with the gospel of Jesus Christ so people can have life inside. They can be washed and cleansed, forgiven and set free. And then we go from that place and we continue to move forward faithfully so that we can do the work of justice and loosen the chains of injustice that are in the world around us today. And granted, church, you need to hear me, like not every cause is a calling. But I'm telling you, church, like the, the church that gets the justice and faithfulness, they go hand in hand. It's never either or. It's always both and. The church that gets the evangelism and justice, faithfulness and justice go hand in hand. I'm telling you, that kind of church, it'll never, ever, ever be stopped. And church, that's what we're talking about right here. We're looking at a broken world. And there's a million different entry points of brokenness but it's the believer that's saying, you know what? I've been seeking the Father, and so I'm close to the heart of the Father, and I know how he feels about these things, and I know what he thinks when he sees the brokenness in the world, and so I am in. I'm willing to take on the work, and I'm willing to go and extend mercy and extend compassion so that I can do the work of justice and do the things that he has called us to do to make this world just a little bit better place until the time when Christ returns and he makes it perfect in the end. Church, that is my hope for you and for me today, that we would be a church that doesn't run from justice, 
that we would be a church that embraces it fully as the Bible embraces it fully. Evangelism, faithfulness, justice, mercy, compassion, never either or, always both and. And that as we go and we do the hard work of justice, that God the Father would add to our number daily those who are being saved, all for the praise and for the glory of Jesus' name. So church, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you this day. God, we praise you because when we were lost and when we were voiceless, when we could do nothing about our current estate, God, you fixed your love upon us. You sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live the sinless life we were not able to live. Lord, you willingly went to the cross. You suffered, you bled, and you died to satisfy the just wrath of God the Father against our sin so that we may be recipients of grace and mercy, that we may have a place reserved for us in heaven one day with you. And so, Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks for the mercy that you've given to us. And so, Jesus, I pray right now through the indwelling Holy Spirit, God, would you fill your church with the exact same mercy that you've given to us that we would go and we would be agents of justice, that we would go and do biblical justice and make this world a little bit better place. Again, all for the praise and for the glory of your name. Father, we do love you. God, we do praise you. And it's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. Church, I do love you guys a whole lot. I cannot wait to see you in two weeks. And again, I hope you guys have a blessed day and uh, honor the fathers that may be around you in your life. Love you guys. We'll see you then.